0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Third week out of six, looking at six meals that Jesus has in the Gospel of Luke. We've said before that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either at a meal, coming from a meal or going to a meal. Luke sees Jesus' ministry of eating with people as central to his earthly ministry. And we saw the last two weeks that Jesus used these meals to communicate something about God, about who God is, about his heart for people. First week, we looked at the meal Jesus had with Levi, the tax collector, the enemy of Israel, the enemy of God himself. And how in, in sharing a meal with Levi, Jesus was communicating something about God's heart for his enemies that all of us actually at one time were enemies of God, and yet because of his great love for us, he initiated reconciliation and called us uh, to be adopted into his family. And then last week we looked at the, the meal Jesus shared with a Pharisee that was, um, was gate-crashed by a prostitute. We saw the way that she expressed her deep love for Jesus, which actually was highly inappropriate, sexually charged, right? just, just, just not appropriate for that context, and yet Jesus received it as an act of worship and saw in, into her heart, saw her gratitude for the forgiveness that he had extended to her even as she, uh, even in the midst of her great sin. And so again, a meal used to communicate something about God's heart for people. Um, and we've, we've said before that these meals are operating on a few different levels. Like there's just the fact that Jesus likes to eat and drink. So in in Luke 7 it tells us that the people were going around saying Jesus he's he 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 comes eating and drinking he's like a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners they're using it in a in a pejorative sense they're saying this this guy can't be a prophet this guy can't be the messiah because he likes to eat he likes to drink and he does it with people that he shouldn't be hanging out with and Jesus owns that and says yeah that's me that's what I do so he he enjoys eating meat and bread and drink just for their own sake, because they're good gifts of God. And then he uses, at the next level, meals, as I said, to communicate something about God's heart for people, his forgiveness, his love, his compassion, his mercy. And then there's an even deeper level where meals in the Bible represent something about God's kingdom. We're going to see in, a little bit later on in the book of Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus, Isaiah was talking about a new kingdom, a heavenly kingdom which is actually a party, which is actually a meal, where, where we as God's people will enjoy the best meat and the best drink. That's the way the Bible describes the new creation, the, the new heavens, the new earth. And so all of those things are present again in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. But before we get into the passage itself, I just want to talk about something really important that we need to understand, uh, some of you will understand, some, for some of you this might be a new idea, but that this principle that we need to employ whenever we are reading the Bible, actually, whenever you're reading any text, you need to have this in mind. This, this principle will save you from butchering the Bible, okay? And the principle is this, whenever we read it, we need to, as best as we can, understand and discern the original intention of the author. So as Luke writes this this account down of Jesus feeding 5,000 men, 20,000 people likely, when Luke's writing that, what is his intention? Why is he writing it? And the other side of the coin, the other side of the question is, and and what do the original hearers, how are they interpreting it? What does it mean to them? Because we are uh, secular, humanist, post-Enlightenment, Western people, we think about everything individualistically, self-centeredly. So we read the Bible and we say, what, what does this mean for me? That's not the right question. We can get to that, but first we need to ask, what does it mean to them? What did the author mean when he wrote it? And what did the original audience think when they heard it? That's what we need to discern as best we can. Otherwise, we butcher the Bible. And you see this over and over and over and over again. In fact, I would say probably the the individualistic reading, right? That is probably the majority way that people preach today. And it's the wrong way. It leads you into all kinds of trouble. Here's an example. I've heard this very passage preached where the main point was that because Jesus can multiply fish and loaves and feed 5,000 people, he can take your bank balance and multiply it in the same way. So this passage means God is going to bless you financially and make you rich. And that was, that was preached with apparently all sincerity. Now, go back to our question. Is that what Luke is intending people to know as he writes this down? that they're going to be rich. Is that what the original hearers of this passage would have thought? Like, Jesus feeds the 5,000, all right, we're going to be rich. Like, is that what they would have thought? No on both accounts. And so, unless you ask these questions, what you always do is find what, as a preacher, find what you want to say, and then get a Bible verse to go around it and reinforce it. That's what, the way I describe it is, it's like firing an arrow and then drawing a target around it. That's the wrong way around. Agreed? Okay, so my burden, I've preached this passage many times and I've focused on the the miracle itself. I don't want to do that so much as try and figure out what did this mean to these people at the time? What did Luke intend for us to know and what did the original audience make of it? Give you a modern example of where we go wrong with this. A few years ago, I, f- I uh, inherited a whole bunch of books from my granddad. Uh, uh, he died back in 2000, but my his wife, my, my nan, didn't die until a decade later. And so, when she died, and we were going through her stuff, I, I got a bunch of his books, and I just I'm I'm a little bit like I got a thing for books, all right. So uh, this was this is really cool because this was not just this wasn't new books. These were old books, nothing better than old books. And, and a lot of them had notes that he had made in them, and they, they smell old, you know. Um, and, and one of these books uh, was on friendship, and as I opened up the inside cover, I found a note to my granddad written from a friend. Uh, this was back in 1930. I've got, I took a photo of it. Let me read it to you, and I'll get to the point in a second. My granddad's name is Cyril, and his friend is Bill. So it says, Cyril, just a token of grateful thanks for a friendship so strong, so deep, so abiding, and withal so fragrant that having known its delights, life without it were to me but a poor thing indeed. Heaven's choicest gift is mine, a true friend. That's from Bill Caulfield, Xmas, 1930. That's a that's a note uh, written from one 20 year twenty-year-old kid to another, and and when I put uh, when I found that I took a photo and I put it up on social media and 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 a couple of responses were like this. Uh, I think Bill was gay. Lol. No, he wasn't, you moron. It's just that in those days people knew how to write to one another and people, even men, knew how to communicate love for one another. And so this is an example, right? If you take a modern person, look, even a document, you know, what is that, 90 years old? So prone to misinterpret it. Why? Because in our culture it, we're so sexually charged that the first thing we think when we see that is... Mm-hmm. Must have been gay. And so we miss it. We miss something really beautiful, really beautiful about a note written from one 20-year-old kid to another that reads like that. So we can't do it, guys. We've got, we've got to get, get over ourselves and get into the context. And that's what I want to do this morning. Let's, let's read the guts of this story. The meal itself, verse 12 to verse 17. Verse 17. Luke writes to people in the first century, late in the day, the 12 approached and said to Jesus, send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place here. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all these people, lol. For about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. He kept giving them to the disciples and set before the crowd to two set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. They picked up twelve baskets of leftover pieces. What would the people sitting there in the desert and the people hearing about this story for the first time, what would they have thought after hearing that story? if you read around the context of this story and you read it in the four Gospels, one of the only uh, stories that's recorded in all four Gospels, when you read around it, you get the sense that these people saw very clearly what the, 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 the broader meaning of this passage, the implication of this passage. So I want to take you through at least two things that they saw and, and, and maybe God will show us The third. The first thing is that they would have seen in Jesus a new Moses. They saw in Jesus a new Moses. Why? Because as Israelites, they were very, very, very familiar with the story of God providing bread for his people in the wilderness. Remember Exodus 16, verse 1 to 5. Here's what it says The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died, <laughs> if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them and see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when the people prepare what they are to bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So, people of Israel, so familiar with that account of God's provision of bread for his people from heaven in the wilderness, would have seen this story and they would have instantly seen the parallels, right? God provides bread in, in, from heaven. For his people in the wilderness, in this story, Jesus looks to heaven and provides miraculously bread for his people in the wilderness. The echoes are clear. The parallels are clear. And so the people see in Jesus maybe a new Moses, maybe a new prophet. Maybe this man is one of God's men. Maybe, Maybe something big is happening here. They see beyond just the miraculous provision to something deeper, something more profound. Jesus, a new Moses. They're also going to see this and, see, and think, is, is this Jesus, a new Elisha, another great hero? I mean, you know, definitely in the top 10, uh, heroes of the people of Israel. Remember 2 Kings chapter 4, a similar story takes place. Let me read it. A man from Baal, Shalishah, and that's right, came to the man of God with his sack full of 20 loaves of barley bread from the first bread of the harvest. Now I hear the echoes here. Elisha said, Give it to the people to eat. But Elisha's attendant asked, What? Am I to set this before a hundred men? Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and they will have some left over. So he said it before them, and as the Lord had promised, they ate and had some left over. Another story in which God works through a powerful prophet to provide bread for many people, like out of something small, a great amount comes with some left over. And again, the echoes in this story are clear. So naturally, the Israelites, maybe not us, but the Israelites living in their context with their memory for what God had done in the past, they see Jesus do this and they immediately are making connections and asking questions. Is this guy a new Moses? Is this guy a new Elisha? Is this guy one of the ancient prophets come into our very midst? I'm going to do what I say. I, I, I don't do but given that I'm wearing a clergy collar, anything's possible today, I'm going to use another sporting reference. I did one last week, and now again this week. This, could, this might catch on, but... Um, I, I, I'm this tra- tragic follower of Liverpool Football Club, um, northwest west of England, right? And, and 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 we've had gone for my whole lifetime just about with disappointment after disappointment. But every now and then there is a a messiah like figure who comes along out of the academy. A a, a young man will rise, and uh, and and in my lifetime that man was Stephen Gerrard. He was born in the city um, one of the city's sons he rose to become uh, not only one of the best uh, players in the world but the club captain and um, someone on whom we could all pit our hopes he has since retired now but every year a new kid comes out of the academy and what is the question the question is is this the new stevie g is this the new stephen Gerrard? is this the new prophet is this the new messiah We know what that guy looked like. We know we traced his history and what he did as he came through. Could this be the new promised one? And that's exactly what these people are doing. They know deeply, intimately the history of their people. They know deeply, intimately that God works through certain men, certain prophets to bring about his will, to bring about his kingdom, to do miraculous things. And so they see Jesus here and say, could this be? In fact, even Herod himself, all right, bad guy Herod, villain Herod, coming up to Christmas, uh, dark cloak, right, twisting his moustache, even he is asking the question, right, back in in verse 7, go back to the start of the passage, Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. Word is getting around. That's why so many people are gathering, in this case 18, 20,000 people gathered together around Jesus. Word is spreading. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John the Baptist, or John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Some that Elijah had appeared and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen, right? This is, naturally, what these people are thinking. I beheaded John, Herod said. But who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. Everyone wants to see him. Everyone wants to know, who is this man? Remember I told you last week, Luke's whole gospel is an attempt to answer that question. Who is this man? Last week, who is this man that he even forgives sins? This week, who is this man who is performing these miracles, who looks so much like one of the prophets of old? In fact, even Jesus asked this question, all right? So this passage is bookended by Herod asking the question to begin with. Jesus asks it at the end. Let's read that, verse 18 to 19. While Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. Jesus wants to know who do people say I am? This question that everybody's asking what's the answer that people are giving? The word on the street is that Jesus is a prophet. The word on the street is that maybe Jesus is even one of the great prophets come into our very midst, and with good reason. The people are thinking that with good, contextualized reasons. But what about the people closest to Jesus? What do they say? Verse 20, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah? I believe that that's the question that Jesus is asking each one of us this morning. Forget about what the guy at the front is talking about. Forget about what the world around you thinks. Forget about what you've been brought up to believe. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? That's the question that each one of us must answer. The, the, the thing that got me to ask that question in, when I was a 19-year-old kid and coming to terms with some of these things was reading C.S. Lewis, where he said, I paraphrase, he said, Jesus is either the most important figure in history or of absolutely no importance. The one thing he can't be is moderately important. And that's why I don't believe in nominal Christianity. I don't believe if you're here this morning, I don't believe in you if you're here this morning because it's Sunday morning and this is what you do. I don't believe you exist. You are an anomaly that I do not understand. I like I just stay at home, eat bacon and eggs, all right? Because the one thing Jesus can't be is moderately important. He's either everything or he's Nothing. We should bury him in history like just about everyone else who's ever lived. Who do you say I am, Jesus says. And Peter gets it, right? The disciples who so often don't get it, in this one instance, Peter gets it. He says, you're not one of the prophets of old. You're not just a miracle worker or a good teacher. You're not just a, compassionate guy who loves poor people and prostitutes. You are nothing less than God's Messiah, the promised one of Israel. You are God coming to human flesh. He gets it. And so he understands, and maybe in that moment all of this is revealed to him, he understands That Jesus has not just come to provide some bread, a sandwich, you know, some fish and chips for a bunch of people who are hungry in the wilderness. He's not just here to provide a once-off meal. He has come to satisfy the longing of every hungry person that will ever live and satisfy that for eternity. That's how much bigger than this story Jesus is. which leads to the third point. So new Moses, new Elisha, a new creation. This is bigger than just one man. This is all of God's salvation purposes from eternity past to eternity future are summed up in this man Jesus. He is the bringer of a new creation. Now, to get this real clear, I have to just dip into John's account of this this, uh, feeding of the 5,000, okay? Because John really pushes the point home. Luke kind of trusts that we'll get it with some hints here and there. John makes it really clear. Okay, so in John uh, 6, you have the aftermath of Jesus feeding these 5,000 people. The aftermath is this. All the people who got fed are hungry again. Right? Because though the meal is miraculous, it's not going to satisfy you forever. And so... The people who were fed in the wilderness have come to follow Jesus. Have come to get more out of Him, and He sees that they're not really they're not really wanting Him for um, for for His grand eternal plan of salvation. They just want food. So this is what He says. All right, in John six twenty six, Jesus answered to this the crowd. Truly, I tell you, you were looking for Me not because you saw the signs, and what those signs point to about his identity. You're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Right? He says, don't don't that, that thing in the wilderness, that feeding 5,000 thing, it was just a sign. Don't get all hung up on the miracle. See what the miracle is pointing to, right? In John's gospel, miracles are always described as signs. Why? Because signs don't exist for themselves. A sign is useless unless it points you to the thing that it's pointing you to, right? The sign doesn't exist for its own purpose. It's to show you something to point you in the direction of something. And John says, all of these signs that he's, he, he has recorded in his gospel are for the purpose of showing you that Jesus is the Son of God and that you might have life, eternal life in his name. And that's why Jesus is saying, forget about the bread. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. He says, I will give you that. Come to me for that. And he goes on and on and on in this discourse in in chapter 6. Let's skip ahead to verse 48 to 50. He goes on, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. He knows what they're thinking. He knows their mind has gone to that event in Exodus 16. Hey, they ate that manna. That was a miracle. God just provided bread from heaven. Whoa. But they died. They died. This is the bread, he says of himself, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. See what he's doing? That bread in the wilderness thing, both the old covenant version and the new covenant one, both of those things just exist to be signs that point to who I really am. I am the bread of life. I have come down from heaven, and I will satisfy you forever. Jesus is the meal that will satisfy us forever, and the kingdom that he has begun to build in his first coming and that he will bring to completion in his second coming, that kingdom, that new creation is symbolized in the scriptures as a meal that will truly satisfy. So let me read that to you. Since we're talking about meals, a couple of passages from Isaiah. From 25, Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus, he sees... This reality. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples, not just Israel, but people of all nations, a feast of choice meat. And you can just stop there. I'd be happy with that. I, as a carnivore, I'm happy there. A feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, Prime cuts of choice meat, fine, vintage wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. Until John, when he's writing the book of Revelation, he's got this passage firmly in his mind, right? He will destroy death forever. The Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in our salvation. That's Isaiah's picture of heaven, the new creation. It's a feast where Jesus is honored as the bread of life. And then he goes on. I could pick a dozen passages. I've just picked two. In Isaiah 55, this is what he says. He says, come. This is an invitation to you. It's echoed in the book of Revelation. Come. Come. Everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food, and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. The invitation is to everyone here, everyone from every nation under heaven. The invitation is to come. God knows that you don't have any money to buy anything. You're spiritually bankrupt. You've got no way of getting into this meal. You don't have an invitation. You don't have money to buy your way in. You've got nothing. And he says, forget about it. Just come. Come, drink, eat, satisfy yourself. All that other stuff you're pursuing won't satisfy you. Every time you try and satisfy your soul with anything retail therapy, ideal husband or wife, kids well-behaved, right? Lights and projector system that works. Any, like anything you try to use to satisfy you is like trying to eat that bread in the wilderness. It's a good gift from God. Praise God for wives and children and cars and projectors. Praise God for his good gift to us, but it won't satisfy you. It's not designed to. You need to go to the bread of life to get satisfied. And the good, good, good news is that everyone is welcome at that table. Everyone. Let me leave the last word to Jesus. Verse 35 of John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the thing that unites all of us here this morning is that we are hungry and we are thirsty and we're trying to satisfy ourselves with meat and drink that just can't satisfy us, we burn through it too fast. So I pray for each one of us, whether we are trying to satisfy ourselves with the good gifts of marriage or children, or work, money, cars or holidays or Or perhaps even things that are not good gifts of you, but actually designed to destroy us. In whatever case, Lord, the outcome is the same. We're left hungry, we're left thirsty. And some of us here this morning are desperate to be filled. Please show them the way, please show them the truth. Please show them the life. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the bread of life. And that when we believe in you, we are ultimately satisfied. And that when you come again and bring about this new creation, as we feast at your table, we will never again experience hunger or thirst. Please give us that vision this morning. Please give us that hunger. We say, Lord, come, come again. Make all things new. Satisfy us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.